the light is red. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. So today is the first Sunday of Advent, and as a pastor, one of the most challenging things that's set before me is how to preach the Advent, because it's a story that we are all familiar with, right? The Christmas story is so well known, even non-believers are super familiar with it. If you think about Christmas or the nativity, maybe this kind of scene shows up to you. You have that picture, right? That's often what we think of. I mean, this is so well known, right? We had, we, some of you maybe did pageants or things like that, whether at church or at your school. But I, I want to play a little game. I don't know if this is going to work because I've never done this before. But I have a couple questions, and I'll ask each section. We'll see which, which section is smarter or better. No judgment here. Right, but I'll start with you guys, softball one. You know, when we think of Mary and Joseph, right, the angel appears to Mary, says she's going to conceive, and then we find out that Mary and Joseph have to travel to Bethlehem for the census to be taken, right? And so in the story, how does Mary get to Bethlehem? What is she, what's her means of transportation? Donkey. A donkey is nowhere mentioned in Scripture, Nowhere in that, that the narrative. They, they likely walked. Maybe they rode a donkey. We don't know. We just make that up. I remember as a kid at our church, we had a live nativity growing up. And I always wished I could be Mary because I wanted to sit on the donkey and wave at the people as they drove through the live nativity. Right? So, we again, we know this story. It's so well known. What about... The innkeeper, right? They go to the inn. There's, there's no room. Depending on your, how you've heard it, maybe there was an evil innkeeper wife, right? Does anybody know the name? This is for the section. Do you guys know the name of the innkeeper? No. No. There's no innkeeper mentioned. In fact, the word in Luke's gospel that's translated as inn really just means room, right? They're traveling to the little town of Bethlehem. It was a small town. They're going to be staying with family, right? There's, there's Middle Eastern hospitality. So by meeting there's no room, it wasn't like the Super 8 at Bethlehem was locked up because of the census. It was, there's no room, maybe no spare private room. They likely stayed in a public space in a house of maybe a family member. So again, like I said, we know this story. It's so well, it's, it's a challenge here. But here's, here, this is coming for you guys. Let me make sure I have my next question here. What animals were around Jesus and Mary and Joseph, right? When Jesus is born, like when I was a kid at our church, I had the lamb's ear when I was like in kindergarten because I had to be the, 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 the little lamb during the nativity thing because I couldn't remember any lines. That was my role. What animals are listed in the scriptures as being there when Jesus is born? This is for your group. You guys are catching on, right? You're like, praise the Lord, we weren't on that side. No animals are mentioned. 
We get the animals because we read that Jesus is wrapped in swaddling cloth and laid in a manger. And you might say, why is there a manger if they're staying in a house? Because animals were very important to families. So often, if you had small animals, you would actually bring them into your house to keep them safe. So were there animals? Maybe there was. Um, likely they weren't born in a, Jesus wasn't born in a barn, right? So here's, here's, here's for you guys, right? How many wise men come to visit Jesus at the birth? Three, we got zero, right, right? Like some of you folks need to realize what we've been doing all the way through here. <laughs> and I say that I love, right, zero, no wise men show up at Jesus' birth. Were there three of them? We don't know. All we know is it's plural wise men, right? We get three because they come with three gifts, but we don't know how many were there. They were not kings either. They come, and we know that they come after Jesus' birth because when Herod hears the news, what does he do? He slaughters the children in Bethlehem, the sons in Bethlehem who are two years and under. So they could have come two years later. We also know there's a little bit of a difference because when the wise men show up, Jesus and Joseph and Mary are in a house. Seems like they've set up camp. So because we know this story so well, Again, I want to figure out how do I preach an advent that's, that's maybe something different so that we don't check out. So this Christmas, what we're going to do is we are going to walk through the tabernacle in preparation for Christmas Day. The tabernacle or the tent of meeting was the portable tent that is set up for the place for the people of God to worship, right? I have a picture here of what the temple Tabernacle, excuse me, is what it looked like. Moses goes up to the mountain when, 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 when the Israelites are freed from the captivity and the slavery of Egypt. God gives him instructions to set up this tabernacle. If you look, there's this outer perimeter, if you will, the footprint of, of the tabernacle. It would have been about 158 feet long by 75, excuse me, 79 feet wide. So that's about how big it was. But this morning, we're going to zero in on what's in the courtyard there, right? We have the brazen altar, this squared bronze box kind of right there in the middle. You can see the guy with his offering there taking a look at it. So this is what we're going to be looking at. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to go to a passage that you probably have never looked at for Advent. You're going to flip to the book of Exodus, chapter 27. And we're going to look at verses one through seven. <clears throat> Exodus 27, verses one through seven. We read these words. God's speaking here to Moses. You shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad, and the altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners, and the horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze, and you shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels, and basins, and forks, and firepans, 
You shall make all of its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net, you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. And you shall make it hollow with boards as it has been shown to you on the mountain. So it shall be made. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray this morning as we come to your word that we would understand that even these instructions for an altar, for something we don't even use anymore, is still your word. And it's still useful for for drawing us in, for, for helping us to see who we are and more importantly, to see who you are. So I ask that you would be with us this morning as we look at this text, as we prepare to celebrate Christmas, that we would see that you have from long ago been preparing the people for Christmas. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want you to do something for a second here. I want you to close your eyes and try to imagine with me what this would be like. You're in the wilderness. It's a barren area. There are a multitude of tents, but yet right in the center, there is this walled screen of fabric and leather before you. And imagine as you enter out into the outer courts, you pull up away the the entrance on the east side of the tabernacle structure. And as you walk in, your attention is instantly drawn to this bronze altar. It's about a seven and a half foot squared bronze image. It's four and a half feet tall, but the whole thing is set upon a raised earthen works. The hammer pounded bronze facade glints in the side in the sunlight. It's corners. You see these horns, they're blood stained, fresh blood dripping down from the edge and you are drawn to the rising smoke as it curls in the sky. You can smell the aroma of fresh, burnt animal flesh. As you breathe in these smells of smoke and flesh, you gaze through that smoke and just over the top edge of this bronze altar, you see the top part of the holy place. And as your gaze continues to follow the curling smoke, you see above the holy place a pillar of smoke that's there in the day and is replaced by a column of fire at night, reminding you that this is where God is. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever considered what that would have been like if you were an Israelite living in the wilderness at that time? 
So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to examine the bronze altar, and I want that to help us to understand that this is just a shadow. This is something pointing us to something far greater. You might ask yourself, why is the altar bronze? Why, why isn't it gold? Right? As you continue into the temple, eventually you'll get to gold instruments and gold tools and furniture, but out here it's bronze. Why? One, bronze actually deals with heat fairly well. So if you're going to uh, you know, overlay a frame of wood, bronze is a good use for that. It would be used daily for sacrifice. Bronze is also connected with God's judgment. A couple examples are in Numbers 21, Moses fashions a bronze serpent to remind the people of God's judgment upon them for their grumbling and to go all the way to the end in Revelation chapter one the great judge stands before John and he is described as having feet of burnished bronze where he treads justice falls the purpose of this altar was so that burnt offerings could be given, sacrifices could be given, offerings of of peace. And the flame in it was not to be extinguished. There's this book of of writings and kind of a commentary on the Torah called the Tamald, and it's Jewish writings. And they said that this flame continued. Even when the Israelites struck camp and they moved to a different region, they would keep this fire going so that when they set up the tabernacle again in the new setting, they would take the fire that they already had and relight what was in this altar. So this flame, this purifying flame was burning forever. The brazen altar is centrally located in the outer courts. It stood between a person and the dwelling place of God. You couldn't walk into the tabernacle and be like, not drawn into this. You would smell it. You would see it. It's, it's right there, front and center, right? The, the only entrance into the tabernacle you run right smack into this altar. This altar is an obvious reminder that something needs to be dealt with before a person can continue in through the tabernacle and come before the Lord. This altar that is the largest piece of furniture in all of the tabernacle is given by God to remind the people that something needs to be dealt with before you come before the holy, 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 holy God. Anyone desiring to progress closer to the holy place would have to offer a sacrifice on this altar. And not just once a year, but every time. The writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 9 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or no remission of sin. As God gives Moses the instructions for this tabernacle, which would kind of become the template of the temple when it would be 
built and constructed in Jerusalem, the Lord is emphasizing through the bronze altar that there is a need for sacrificial atonement to consecrate a person, to make one set aside, to purify, to cleanse a person. A couple chapters later in Exodus 29, verse 37, you would read these words that whatever touches the altar shall become holy. It's almost like God is trying to teach something here. It's like he's trying to point to something, a need that we have, but also pointing to who he is and that there is a greater need and something better has to come. If you were an Israelite at that day and you wanted to to come to, to, to deal with sin, you wanted to approach God and, and, and go into the more holy areas, leave the, 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 the outer courts and go into there, you would bring your animal and what you would do is you would set your hands upon the head of this animal, symbolically transmitting your sin upon this animal. The priest would then slice the throat and allow the blood and its life to pour out. They would take that blood and splatter it on the corners, the horns of this altar. And a portion of the meat, depending on what it was, there's different instructions, the, cork, the carcass of the animal would be put upon the fire. The life of the animal exchanged for the life of a human. Those who offered the sacrifice were ransomed from the power of death for the sins that they have committed. The beast took the wrath, took the punishment the person deserved, and this person who brought the sacrificial animal would be momentarily, that's important there, momentarily counted as holy and so enabled to draw closer to God, to enter the holy place. There's a problem, right? There's a problem with this altar. There's a problem with the sacrificial system that was instituted upon it. The required repetition of these offerings reminded us that these animals were insufficient. You couldn't find the biggest animal and be like, I'm good. You had to come again and again and again and again. You can almost imagine the carnage of the court on days where it was required that everybody comes and offers a sacrifice. It wouldn't just be the horns that were splattered with blood. It would trickle into the whole courts. But the real reality is, is the problem isn't the offering. The problem isn't the altar. The problem is us. Because we continue to sin. And so we need to go back again and again and again, offering another sacrifice. Something greater needs to come that is superior to the blood of bulls and goats and birds. But God was showing something. He was establishing something. He was also teaching the people through the tabernacle how he was to be approached. He's not a God to be trifled with. You don't flippantly just walk up to a holy God who has every right to do all that he pleases because all that he pleases is good. 
Sin has to be dealt with. It must be covered. And this is why we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate Christmas because a better and greater one has come. The child born in Bethlehem, the one wrapped in swaddling cloth, laid in a wooden manger, probably not around any animals, and no wise men peeking in there. There's not an angel floating over his head. He isn't radiating some sort of light from his face like in some of those old paintings. Mary doesn't have a floating halo over her head either. None of these things are happening. It's a teenage girl who just gave birth, and I've been around birth a few times in my life, having the number of kids I have. It's never nice. It's never silent. It's always loud. It's always messy, and that's where Jesus is, and this is why we celebrate, because he came to be a better and greater altar and sacrifice. Jesus is the better and greater means by which we are counted holy. Not for a moment, right? You slaughter a bull, and then you you, you go and you, you, you worship and you leave. And I always thought about this, and maybe it's just because I'm weird. But if you slaughtered an animal on the altar to then go past the altar so that you could enter, enter into the, the next area of, of the tabernacle, what happens if you sinned then? I'll just use an example that I think most of us can relate to. Because if you've had a kid... You have come into church, you're ready to worship, but your kid's doing something, and I know none of you guys think this way again, it's just me, and you're just like, if I could, you know, right now, for the glory of God, that would be awesome. But if that was the tabernacle, as soon as I had that thought, sorry guys, <laughs> like I'd have to go back out again, grab another animal, and, and start the whole process over again. Forgive me, Lord, for I have sinned. I want to punt my kid. Take this offering and, and, and forgive me of that so that I can go back into the court again, right? And then the next moment, again, I, I'm a little ADD, so the next, oh, I got to go again. Like, you need something better. And this is why we celebrate Christmas, because Jesus is the greater altar. Jesus is the greater sacrifice. And he isn't just covering over your sins for one moment, but forever. I pray that you would think about the bronze altar this Christmas. But I pray that as you think about it, you would look past it and see that it's merely just a shadow showing a greater one that would come. I love animals. I love them. But every one of you here is of more value than an animal. Sorry, PETA. Right? Like, if this, if this building was on fire, and even my pets, right, the, the, the dogs I have, my, my son's snake, we've had, we've had a lot of animals. I wouldn't run to grab those animals. I'm going to go get my kids. Or if we were here, right, like I am not, I, I love my pets, but I don't care. I want to make sure you guys are saved. Animals were merely just a show. A requirement is needed. Something needs to atone. But animals are insufficient. This is why you had to go again and again and again. We need something of infinite worth that could cover the sins 
past, present, and future of all who would believe in him. We need something that's far better than a bull or goat or bird or, or an elephant or tiger or bear or any animal that you can think of. Friends, there is no way to come before the Lord God without coming through Christ and the cross. If you want to progress into the presence of God, you have to go through the altar. And the altar is a cross with Christ crucified upon it. This cross is like a giant altar. You can't get to him without going through the cross. The altar and the cross remind us that you are a sinner. They remind you that the wrath of God is upon sin and so upon you. The altar and the cross remind us that we can't save ourselves. We need something outside of ourselves. In the Old Testament, it was an animal. Praise God, in the New Testament, it's Christ. The once for all sacrifice that satisfies all the sins that we have ever committed the bronze altar reminds us that sacrifice can change your standing before God. But Jesus and the cross is greater than a bronze altar. It's only through the cross and the perfect sacrifice of Jesus that any can come before the holy sovereign God. And not in fear and trembling but in a bold confidence that's resting in the goodness and the righteousness of Jesus. That's why we celebrate Christmas. We don't celebrate Christmas because of that cutesy little image there. We celebrate Christmas because of a cross. We celebrate Christmas because of a resurrection. Beloved, this Christmas, know that Jesus is Sufficient. Look at how the author of Hebrews puts it. Hebrews chapter 9. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 11 through 14. This was read earlier, but, but it's just so good here. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, the word tent there means tabernacle. Not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood, of goats, goats or calves, but by the means of his own blood, because it was perfect, thus securing an eternal redemption. Not a, not a one-time, not a momentary, not a fleeting, but an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, right? it did, it did for a moment. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, 
He, Christ, himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that he, excuse me, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. The Apostle Paul would say, for our sake, he made him, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin. He was perfect, right? The the spotless lamb of God so that in him through Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Or maybe you're familiar with this passage, usually only read around Easter time, Isaiah 53. How does Christ become this atoning sacrifice? How is it that he is sufficient? How is it that he is able to, by his righteousness, cover over our unrighteousness? The prophet Isaiah says, 53, verse 5 and 6, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone each to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That's why we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate Christmas because no more sacrifices need to be paid. We celebrate Christmas because God's righteous justice has been satisfied because it was poured out upon Christ instead of upon us, the ones who deserve it. We celebrate Christmas because if you want to seek the full presence of God, you only need to come under the grace that is poured out upon us through the cross of Christ Jesus. I realize that Christmas isn't always an easy time. Perhaps you are approaching it with discouragement. You're not very celebratory and don't want to be because as you look at your own life, you think, I have nothing to celebrate for. I am a mess. I continue to just screw up my life and make bad choices. Honestly, I think some of us, self-included, there are times I have willfully sought Sinful things. Surely this is not something to celebrate. But it is. Because at Christmas we see that God has come in flesh to draw us to him. You don't have to take an animal and go to God. God came to you met you in your mess, met you in your need so that you can enter into the fullness of his presence. Come to the greater and better altar. You don't have to offer some sacrifice of an animal. You don't have to offer some other sort of sacrifice. I think right now, most of us wouldn't think, oh, I did something wrong. Let me go get the pet, you know, the dog or the cat and, and go outside and build an altar and sacrifice. I don't think you think that. But perhaps what you do is when you've done something wrong, you think I have to offer a sacrifice. So I'm going to give up. Fill in the blank. 
or I have to offer some sort of sacrifice. So from this day forward, every day, I'm going to spend three hours in prayer because that's going to show that I'm worthy of God. But then you wake up the next morning and you don't have three hours of time. Or you do it. You prayed for three hours. You, you read your Bible every day, but then a roadblock comes and you forget it. And you're not perfect anymore. And you weren't perfect when you started. We celebrate Christmas because there is no need for a sacrifice of any kind, whether that be animals, whether that be work, whether that be some sort of sacrifice that you kind of give, like I'm going to you know, swear off ice cream for the rest of my life because that's going to show that, that God is more glorious than that. Some of you don't understand what kind of sacrifice that is. But what you have to understand is it isn't required. We celebrate Christmas because sacrifice isn't required. A greater altar has come. So this Christmas, I want you to think about the brazen altar. Forever ignited with a flame, covered in blood, always opened. At any time, anyone who was guilty could approach that altar with a sacrifice so that they could draw near to God. But I want you to then look past that altar and I want you to see that there's a superior one. A cross with perfection nailed to it. Jesus, the spotless, sinless one, covered in his own perfect blood, has taken what you deserve, the wrath of God, the righteous judgment and punishment for your sinful rebellion. But instead, I want you to see that his arms are always open wide, accepting the guilty, whoever they are, wherever they are, whenever they come, and he will exchange his righteousness for your unrighteousness. This is why we celebrate Christmas. And I pray, regardless of where you are, you would understand that this is true for you. Whether you've been a Christian for 50 years or you're not a Christian and you're thinking, there's no way, there's no way God can accept me. Yes, there is. He's already done it through Christ. This is why we celebrate Christmas. Because the Savior has come. A greater altar and a greater sacrifice has come. His name is Jesus. And he's already done it. It is finished. So every week I'm going to say, Merry Christmas. Because we have a real reason to be merry. So let's pray. Lord God. Let us be humbled for a moment at the reality that for generation upon generation, animals were slaughtered because blood is required. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. But the animal's sacrifice is a momentary fleeting thing. Surely those people generation after generation we're calling out lord when when will the time come when we will be truly a holy people and there will be no need for further sacrifice that day has come and so we celebrate with joy a 
far greater altar, a far greater sacrifice has come in Christ. Lord, let us lean into it this Christmas, Lord. I pray for some of us that we'd be reminded again, and maybe for some of us, we would experience the true joy of what it means that Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, has come, and that he has already satisfied all that needs to happen through his perfect life, through his death, and by his glorified resurrection, you have approved that sacrifice. It is finished. Let us have a Merry Christmas. But let us also look to that great second advent when we will fully partake in the fullness of that sacrifice. And we will be a holy nation forever living for your glory and no longer seeking after sin because it will be wiped away and we will be pure. And for that reason, Lord, we say thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name, our Savior, and our glorious sacrifice. Amen. Thank you so much, Pastor Kurt. So